The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Having defeated the hill giant very nearly at the cost of Umura's life, the party enters a kind of service tunnel behind the guard tower. It leads on and on, deep into the mountain's core, before terminating at a ladder. This ladder leads up to a barred trapdoor, which might have been a problem if it weren't for Umura. She takes care of it with a spell, and the companions are able to continue. Above, they find a storage room with a single exit, leading into yet another seemingly endless passage. This one becomes more and more damp the further they go. A dull hiss of white noise grows from a whisper to a roar by the time the party reaches the end, where they find a ledge that describes a large chasm. A colossal waterfall plunges from high above down into the abyss. Behind the waterfall, the companions find a closed portcullis and a large water wheel that, when they pull a lever, engages with the rushing water and raises the gate. A third passageway opens before them as the whole mountain begins to thrum and come alive, with hidden gears turning, metal clanging, and stones grinding. It's a cacophony of sound coming from all around, but among the chaos, Eridine hears something that stands apart. It takes her a long time before she recognizes it as the sound of a male voice singing. Chapter 69, Part 1, Day 98. Night. Party status. Harl, 28 of 34 hit points. Gyrios, 22 of 37. Eridine, 20 of 20. Umura, 12 of 25. Daz, 17 of 17. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Hold portal. Charm person. Levitate. Lightning bolt. And... Water breathing. Gyrios has prayed for, resist fire, speak with animals, striking, and create water. Before Eridine could even stop to consider how strange it was to hear a voice singing in this place that should have been abandoned for centuries, yet another new sound was introduced. Insofar as it was a metallic sound, it should not have been particularly noteworthy. There had been plenty of mechanical noises audible ever since Harl had engaged the water wheel, 
But this one stood out. Not only did it come regularly, it fell on the beat of whatever song the voice was singing. One did not need to be a dwarf to know this sound. Even Umura knew the knell of a smith's hammer when she heard it. Harl and Daz were looking at each other intently. At the same time, they both breathed the forge. Eredin told them about the bass melody that accompanied the hammer strikes, but oddly the dwarves seemed unconcerned. They picked up the pace, though she noticed that they also readied their weapons. The mysterious voice grew louder and louder, until, well before they entered the forge, it completely filled the hallway with music. the forge cautiously with their weapons out. The smell of charcoal along with the warmth and light greeted them long before the passageway ended and opened up into a very large cobblestone chamber. The ceiling was 40 feet high while the room itself was easily 100 feet square. The center of the space was dominated by a huge figure. A 20 foot tall dwarf carved from stone and positioned between an oversized anvil and a gigantic bloomer. A bright red and orange glow came from the bottom of that bloomer, and pieces of slag were scattered about on the floor around it. The stone dwarf might have looked like a sculpture, except that it was moving. It was the source of most of the noise. A massive hammer was gripped in one stone fist, while the other, not needing tongs, held a piece of raw iron and presently flipped it to receive the next hammer blow. The construct, animated statue, golem, or whatever it was, had been built from two large pieces of stone, one atop the other. The wider lower piece had the dwarf's legs and feet carved into it, with no gap between. The upper piece comprised the torso and head. It swiveled so the giant stone blacksmith could reach a new tool when it needed one, or dunk the iron into a cauldron of water when it was time to cool the metal. There was no visible neck, and the head could not move independently of the torso. Speaking of the head, it was the strangest sight of all. The blacksmith's eyes had been made by the sculptor to look wide open, lending the construct an expression of permanent surprise. Contributing to this was the mouth, whose thick lips were parted and open in an O. Of course, this was the source of the singing first heard by Eredin. The song ran its course and then immediately started again, so long as the smith beat the iron. When they entered, it immediately turned its blind stone eyes to them. At first, it seemed surprised to see them, but it soon became clear that it seemed equally shocked by everything. Little whirls and spirals had been chiseled into the squared-off beard, and into its hair as well. The chest was bare, and a carved belt delineated the spot where the top met the base. A long table, piled with tools, was within easy reach of the construct. Hammers of all sizes, chisels, fullers, and hardies, and an assortment of molds, all at the ready. After the initial glance, it ignored them and continued with its work. It didn't even break rhythm. All at once, it swung around with a deafening sound and plunged a white hot metal strut into the slack tub. The glowing iron hissed like a pit full of vipers as it hit the water, and steam filled the chamber. 
Then there followed a heavy clang as the strut was thrown in a pile of similar projects. When the steam cleared, sucked through a vent in the ceiling directly above the construct, they could see all manner of other finished works. There were piles upon piles of chain, iron rods, beams, hooks, and ingots. Now the construct had rotated the top piece the rest of the way and was working at the bellows. Umura noticed that there were forward-facing feet and knees carved into that side as well, so the base had two fronts and no back, while the upper piece was shaped like a regular dwarven body, more or less. Harl, Daz, Gyrios, and Eridine fanned apart as they entered the room, marveling at the golem, awed but not afraid. Umura remained near the entrance. She could not help feeling at least a little apprehensive. Eventually, she moved towards Harl. Are you sure it's safe here? The dwarf puckered his lips in thought. Safer than most places around here, he replied. You might want to give that bloomer a wide berth. He pointed at the chimney-shaped earthworks bloomer behind the construct. Tongues of fire licked the edges of the bottom opening where Umura saw a grate of shining metal. She didn't know much about smithies, but she thought that the lower aperture was normally meant to be open so the bloom could be easily removed. The stone blacksmith had stopped its song momentarily and presently worked at the bellows. It opened the metal grate and removed the slag-covered iron bloom. A few expertly aimed hammer strikes knocked the slag off onto the floor. Then there was the grinding sound once again as the top of the construct rotated back to its original position. The hammering resumed, and so did the song. Umura translated to herself as the words filled the chamber. A dwarf is happiest when at work. A dwarf feels alive when they beat the iron. The hammer is a dwarf's best friend. Idleness is the enemy. Work makes the dwarf. Work makes the dwarf. We build in Grunmog's name. Blessed is Grunmog's name. Dramatis Personae, Harl Stonecarver, six years ago. Sometimes he took his lessons in his own apartment. At other times he had to meet his teacher in the archives. Today he met Grillikin Sharpchisel outside on a flat rock that looked east towards Thangar. The citadel could not be seen from here. It was too small for that. But on a crisp, cool late autumn day such as this one, the ghostly shape of the cloudspur could be seen, stabbing the sky like a tooth in the far, far distance. Are you ready? asked his teacher. Harl nodded. Then begin. His instructor's eyes and face were kind, as they always were, and Harl was prepared. He had been up half the night committing this speech to memory. Today he was to deliver his final report, and, if Master Sharp Chisel was satisfied, his formal education would be complete. Harl cleared his throat. <clears throat> All dwarven holds known to us through experience or from recorded sources are modeled after the pinnacle of our people's achievement in dwarven history, the Egojin. 
This is because the architecture of the greatest of all holds approaches perfection. At the topmost level, situated under the open sky, is the fortress. Dwarvar presents a variation on this design, having been built in times of war. Here, the palace and the fortress are one and the same, and all is safely contained under one roof. The design of the Eguijin, according to accounts and surviving maps, shows that the summit was topped with walls that surrounded a courtyard, with the palace, barracks, supply depots, and others as separate buildings arranged in a cluster. The first interior level, under the fortress, was reserved for trade and industry, and Dwarvar copies this organization in most ways, with a few minor exceptions that I will touch upon later. Below the guilds and markets, we find the mushroom fields. Deeper still, the forge and the mines. Our mines are in such a way as to encourage growth in the mushroom fields above, and the temperature is carefully regulated. Likewise, steam is captured through vents and feeds these same fields with just the right amount of moisture. As discussed already, automation where required is usually achieved through water power, although magical means are employed to the extent that the artificers can manage. This concludes my talk on the brilliant architecture and interconnectivity between the various elements in the Egojin, and by extension, our own beloved Dwarvar, a hold that is certain to thrive and grow for many centuries to come. Thank you. Grilligan Sharp Chisel clapped and crinkled his eyes with pride and pleasure. Well done, Harl, well done. The senior dwarf swept his long white beard off his lap with a hand and stood up. His expression changed into something more bittersweet as he realized their time together had come to an end. Even Harl, who was more than ready to leave academia behind, could feel the melancholy of the moment. Remember that your education does not end here. In many ways, it is just beginning. Harl nodded and then bowed deeply at the waist. I have enjoyed being your teacher and expect to see great things from you one day. Remember, the champions of old were not born champions. Blacknail was not born into his armor. Work makes the dwarf, but deeds make the champion. Never forget that, Harl. Welcome to Arius and meet the Ram Pack and Party Advantage, a D&D play podcast. Join Manny, Garrus, Roshin, and Tagoro as they travel the vast lands and learn long-forgotten secrets and find themselves in all kinds of shenanigans. So what are we doing? Drugs. We did that in season one already. Did we? Well, you did. Yes. <laughs> Tagoro got a taste for him. Oh, God. I, I, I'm now the personal healer and I have to take care of Manny? Well, I mean, your, your girlfriend was the personal healer more than you. Remember? I'm a dragon? Yeah. Oh, I mean, last time you were a dragon, it didn't go so good. Let's not repeat, okay? Xnay on the Dragnay. Got it? Tune in every other Wednesday on all your favorite podcast platforms of choice and on YouTube. Will the party find the advantage on their next encounter? Only one way to find out. See you then. Chapter 69, Part 2, Day 98, Night. Party Status. The party status is unchanged. It was hard to tear their eyes away from the giant automaton as it worked and sang, beating out the rhythm of its song with the hammer and the heated iron. But before long, Harl was motioning for them to follow, 
as he made his way to the far side of the huge chamber. Gyrios fell in behind him, and as he went, he noticed the other features of the room. There were half a dozen normal-sized workstations set up in a circle around the oversized one. Six smithies in one room, in addition to the gigantic one. Just imagine how much they must have produced here, and how much ore must have been required. Daz had already crossed the room, and was talking loudly to Harl, trying to be heard over the golem's song. Meanwhile, Eredin moved up beside Gyrios and touched his shoulder. He smiled at her, and then glanced back at the automaton, raising his eyebrows. She smiled back and nodded. Together they crossed the room and joined the two dwarves. Umura held back a little. Harl had instructed her to keep her distance from the giant bloomer, and had inadvertently aroused her curiosity. There was something about it. Some kind of mystical energy. She made sure to veer toward it as she responded to Harl's summons and tried to get a closer look. Then she saw something behind the grate, or she thought she did. When she looked back, it was gone, but she could have sworn she had seen a face in the flames. Not behind or within the flames, but made of them. It had been human-like, but not human. There had been eyes and a mouth, but no distinct nose or ears. There had been no colors that would appear on a human face either. Only reds and oranges and yellows and smoky black. Was her mind playing tricks on her? Perhaps she had just imagined it. Despite the dwarf's warning, she moved closer still. She flicked her gaze away and up ahead saw that Harl had his back to her, so she moved a little closer. The face reappeared and then it was gone. Although it was unnatural, the way it flickered and bulged, she was not afraid. On the contrary, she found herself drawn to it. She obeyed her instincts and moved closer still, so that now she was a mere dozen feet away. Then ten feet. Then eight. Then five. The heat radiating out from the thing was, at this distance, almost painful. She squinted as she examined the bloomer's grate. There was a little latch on it that she had seen the golem use when it had removed the iron bloom. By now, the heat was so intense she could feel it in her lungs when she inhaled. A third time, the face flickered back into view, and this time it remained. Its eyes were too big, its mouth too wide. When it spoke, it made no sound. Its voice was only in her mind, only for her. For a speech, and I will call you master for one hundred and one years. Umura staggered back a half step. She stole one more glance in Harl's direction. He and the others were still walking away. Nobody was seeing this. She reached out a hand to the latch on the grate, almost without thinking. Then suddenly she realized what she was about to do and snatched her hand back. She looked up at the automaton. It was singing and working away without giving her a notice. Its back was to her. Suddenly afraid, Umura took a step back, then another, shaking her head, no. She became aware of her own heartbeat. It was pounding against her breast like a smith's hammer. Now the heat seemed to double. Gouts of flame shot forth from the grate and Umura took two more steps back, then turned on her heel and started to walk away. As soon as her back was facing the bloomer, she heard the voice in her head again. But it was different this time, desperate and furious. Me, or I will boil your blood. She broke into a sprint, running across the chamber until she caught up with the others.
Nomura forced herself to calm down. There was no need to tell the others about what had happened or what she had nearly done. When she caught up to them, they were at the far end of the giant forge. The sound of her running made them look back in alarm. She waved it away, breathing hard, and explaining that the stone construct had her transfixed. It's, it's such a marvel. I couldn't take my eyes off it. Harl's face was bland, unreadable. Did he know? Come on, we keep going, he said, and led them under a stone archway into yet another long corridor. The dwarves of the Egojin certainly don't seem to have made an effort to keep things close, complained Gyrios, only half-joking. My legs are starting to ache. There's a reason for everything, Gyrios, said Harl. Everything in here is designed with structural integrity and resource sharing in mind. This deep inside, if you build everything together in a cluster. He cupped his hands one atop the other with an empty space between them. There is not enough rock to bear the load. Here he flattened his hands together, demonstrating a collapse. Well, Gyrios conceded, suddenly hyper aware of the millions of tons above their heads. Mountains are very heavy, I suppose. Quite. Look up ahead, interjected Umora. I see a light. There was indeed a glow at the end of the hall, some 80 feet away. When they got close enough, they could see that it was coming from some magically illuminated quartz crystals, just like the ones they had seen in Thangar. The cluster of spiky hexagonal prisms was a big one, with the largest radial sprout being the size of a loaf of bread. It was set right in the middle of the wall, and marked the center of a T-junction. Which way should we go, Harl? Harl had no idea. Left. Follow me. He led the way with Daz, then Eridine, Umura, and Gyrios behind him. After a hundred feet or so in this direction, the passage widened, and the cobblestone floor, walls, and ceiling gave way to unfinished bare rock. Harl looked over his shoulder at Daz. You feel that? He asked. Daz nodded back. By now, the light from the quartz crystals had long been swallowed up into the darkness beyond the reach of Umura's lantern. She held it higher, trying to see what the two dwarves were referring to, but there was nothing that stood out to her. They continued in silence for a few more minutes. The only sound was their footsteps and their breathing. The ubiquitous mechanical noises from earlier had faded to nothing by now. Then Umura's lantern light did fall upon something different. At first it seemed to be a dead end, but as they neared it, it became clear. A set of iron double doors. When they were 20 feet away, Harl put up his hand to signal a halt. As the companions waited, he approached the doors, very slowly and carefully, to get a closer look. Umura. Light, he said. The sorceress shone the beam of the lantern directly where the dwarf pointed. On each of the doors, about the size of the palm of her hand, was an intricate design, a rune, either etched or painted on the metal. The two symbols were identical. I feel that I've seen these before. But I can't quite remember where. Ugh. I wish Grumblebelly were here. <sighs> well, that's something I did not expect ever to say. Umora, are these symbols known to you? There is only a very small chance that Umora would recognize this pair of glyphs of warding for what they are, unless the runes are identical to the ones Grithwip drew on his father's sarcophagus. But Umora has an intelligence of 18, and that's an underrepresented stat. It doesn't provide constant rewards the way strength, dexterity, and constitution scores do. 
I'm going to give her an intelligence check with a minus four because she hasn't learned the spell herself, and she'll have to roll with disadvantage. These are artificer-drawn runes, after all, and not necessarily the same ones as a magic user would make. Here's the first roll. A 14 or under means she can roll again to confirm. A 2. That's a good start. If she can do it again, she'll know them for what they are. The roll. And it's an 18. For a moment, they did look familiar, but then she noticed a curve where she would not have expected it. Then another. And then a shape like an apostrophe that seemed out of place. I... I'm not sure. I'm sorry, I don't know. Harl's mouth twitched. He wrung his hands together and sighed. I think we should turn back. I have a bad feeling about these symbols. But what if this is the way we need to go to get to the top? Countered Umora. What if it isn't? No argument. We go back. Harl didn't wait for a reply. He walked right past all four of his companions and waved for them to follow. For the briefest of moments, Umora's curiosity almost got the better of her again. She very much wanted to take a closer look at these symbols. But she had had her fill of excitement, so she followed Harl and the others back the way they had come. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, available for a buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My sincere thanks to everyone who has supported the show. And speaking of supporting the show, I'd like to read a review from the Podbean app today. And this one is a little different because it's about One Shot in the Dark. It was posted by Podbean user Rented Legend. Rented Legend writes, Honestly, I bought this game so I could introduce my 13-year-old to tabletop role-playing games. She absolutely loves it. It's now to the point where my wife is starting to get involved with it. Keep up the good work with Tale of the Manticore and the development of this game. Both are fantastic products. My turn to be honest now, Rented Legend. I never really intended One Shot in the Dark to work well with children, specifically, but I hear quite often that this is where it shines. That's a happy accident, and I'm just thrilled about it. The idea that some people will get into the hobby through something I made is beyond cool. Thanks so much, Rented Legend, for making my day with that comment. Now let's talk about this episode's great voice talent. Back as Harl's teacher, Gurlican Sharpchisel, is the amazing Professor Dungeon Master of the popular DungeonCraft YouTube channel. If you don't already watch him, you're missing something special. He has a ton of wisdom to share. Thanks, Professor. For those of you who use socials, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey y'all, I'm Derek, host of the How Not to DM podcast. I hope you'll join me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. 
Each Wednesday, I bring on a new guest to talk about how they got into TTRPGs, some of their biggest mistakes and triumphs from behind the screen, and their awesome projects. There's no right way to listen to How Not to DM. Start from the beginning and binge, or take a look at my guests and pick a few that you recognize or that sound interesting to you. There's something for everyone, whether you're looking to up your skills running games or just want to learn more about what it takes to design, create, and run awesome TTRPGs. Head to my Twitter account at HN2DM to find my link tree, guest announcements, and more. And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.